When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Hello, my name's Paul Vincent, and I host two bi-weekly podcasts, The Myths and History of Greece and Rome, and The Myths and Legends of Europe. Thanks so much to David for inviting me onto his show to tell you about the fall of Constantinople. If you enjoy this guest slot, then please go to www.mythandhistory.podbean.com where you'll find my podcasts. So, before we talk about Constantinople and the fall, a little bit of context. In 146 BC, the city of Carthage was captured and destroyed by the great Roman general Scipio Aemilianus. When the fighting was over and he saw the burning city, Scipio began to cry. The Greek historian Polybius was with Scipio and asked him why he was weeping after such a glorious victory. Scipio replied, It is glorious, but one day another general will give the same order to another army and destroy the Empire of Rome. 1,598 years later, that order was given. Because 1543 was not just the fall of Constantinople, but the final extinguishing of the Roman Empire. Constantine XI Dragases was the last in an unbroken line of emperors that stretched back to Augustus Caesar, the emperors of Rome. Of course, the empire ruled by Constantine XI bore no resemblance at all to the ancient empire of Rome. At the height of its territorial power under the Emperor Trajan in the early 2nd century AD, Roman lands stretched from Britain to Egypt and from modern Portugal to the Red Sea. The Mediterranean Sea was entirely surrounded by Roman lands. Roman control over its territory was virtually absolute. There may have been external enemies, but none was a really serious threat. The supremacy of Rome slowly evaporated over the subsequent 1300 years. In the 3rd century, the barbarians began to score victories and civil war was rife. Thirty emperors ruled in a 50-year period. At the end of the 3rd century, Diocletian stabilised the empire and then Constantine took over. He realised that Rome was no longer ideally situated to be the capital of the empire, so he built a new city on the site of the ancient Greek settlement of Byzantium. He called it New Rome. Everyone else called it Constantinople, city of Constantine. He made it the most beautiful and spectacular city in the known world, bringing in treasures from all over the empire. The city was heavily fortified under the reign of Theodosius II in the early 400s. The Theodosian walls were so strong and so well designed that Constantinople became, to all intents and purposes, impregnable, 
Not until Mehmet II arrived on the scene with his massive cannons did technology catch up and render the walls not up to the job. Rome fell in 476, but Constantinople held firm. The Eastern Roman Empire survived the fall of Rome and thrived. In the 6th century, that most visionary of emperors, Justinian, rebuilt Constantinople, making it even more beautiful and magnificent than before. He ordered the building of the finest Christian church in the world. Two great architects were found, and Justinian said they could design it as they liked, so long as they stuck to two instructions. It must be the most magnificent church in the world, and it must be completed as quickly as possible. 10,000 men were employed to build the church. They were split into two teams. 5,000 started at the south end and 5,000 in the north, and they had a competition to see who could finish first. In the end, the building took just five years. This was amazing. Westminster Abbey in London was built over 500 years later, and it took 33 years to finish. When it was completed, the new church of St Sophia, the Hagia Sophia, was indeed the most magnificent church in the world, and would remain so for hundreds of years. The dome was 107 feet high, decorated in simple crosses and covered completely in gold. It was said that it seemed to float above the ground as if suspended from heaven on a golden chain. There were countless candles and lamps which gave the inside a beautiful glow, lighting up the glittering mosaics. Legend has it that the imperial door was made of wood from Noah's Ark and the high altar contained Christian relics like the nails which fixed Jesus to the cross and, of course, the true cross itself. The church is still there in Istanbul today, although it's now a museum. It is utterly magnificent. The empire reached its heyday with the final defeat of the Persians by the Emperor Heraclius in the early 7th century. The rise of Islam, though, precipitated the decline of Byzantium. By the end of the 7th century, Syria, Jerusalem and Egypt were lost. A period of renewed greatness, even if the territory of the empire was still much smaller, occurred under the Macedonian dynasty, but after the death of the last great emperor of that line, Basil II the Bulgar Slayer in the early 7th century, the decline was terminal. The Battle of Manzikert in the late 11th century should have destroyed the empire, but the efforts of two remarkable emperors, Alexius Comnenus and his son John the Beautiful, provided another period of stability. Alexius even managed to use the soldiers of the First Crusade to regain some territory. The relationship between the Orthodox Byzantine Empire and the Catholic West was always strained, though. By the time the Fourth Crusade arrived in Constantinople, less talented men led the empire. This resulted in Constantinople being occupied by the Crusaders for 60 years. Another unlikely revival took place under Michael Paleologus, who, in 1261, managed to reclaim the capital for the empire. It just delayed the inevitable, though. When Michael died, his descendants couldn't arrest the slide towards destruction. By the late 1300s, the Byzantine Empire was on its knees. As the Eastern Empire collapsed, though, the powers of the West, including England, were coming into their own. Nobody had inherited the empire in a worse state than Manuel Paleologus. His empire was made up of a few separate patches of territory. The army and navy were not fit to defend it, and the empire was, in any case, a vassal state of the Ottomans. Manuel settled down to govern what he had left, and tried to work out how to free himself and his people from the Turks. In 1394, after a minor dispute, the Ottoman sultan Bayezid occupied most of the remaining lands of the Byzantine Empire, a few patches of modern Greece, and then he besieged Constantinople. 
In 1396, he also conquered Bulgaria and then Thessaly. As the Ottomans moved across the Balkans, the Western Europeans suddenly began to take the threat seriously. The Christian lands of southeastern Europe were being eaten up by the Muslim invaders, and the Western Europeans started to fear that they may be next. In August 1396, a great crusading army swept down from Hungary. Frenchmen and Germans joined the Hungarians, but the result was another victory for the Ottomans. Manuel realised the Westerners were at last interested in helping him drive the Turks back, and he sent embassies out to England, France, Russia and others. Charles VI of France sent about 1,200 men, who barged through the Turkish siege and reached Constantinople. Manuel was glad to see them, and they had a few small victories, but 1,200 men were not going to turn the tide against the Turks. The leader of the French forces suggested that Manuel might have more luck getting the troops he needed if he personally travelled to meet the European kings. Manuel decided he had nothing to lose, and so on the 10th of December 1399 he set out from Constantinople on a grand tour of Europe. Manuel began his tour in Italy. The Duke of Milan threw a huge banquet in the Emperor's honour and promised to come to Constantinople himself if Manuel was successful in his trip. The Emperor's next call was probably the one he expected to be the most important. In June 1400, Manuel arrived in Paris to meet with the King of France. Charles VI had already supplied 1,200 men and promised Manuel a limited number of extra troops in the following year, but Manuel begged for more. Sadly, the troops got nowhere, because Charles VI of France had an unfortunate problem which earned him the nickname Charles the Mad. Just as Manuel was pressing the French king for more aid, Charles had one of his attacks of madness, and the talks were at an end. Manuel gave up the French and travelled to Calais, where he boarded a boat and crossed over that small stretch of water we now call the English Channel. It was time to call on the King of England. There had been some worry in the Emperor's camp that the King wouldn't meet him. Nothing could have been further from the truth. Manuel and his colleagues had to wait a couple of months while the English put down a rebellion in Scotland. In December 1400, though, they made their way to London, where they were met by King Henry IV. The two men got on like old friends. Henry promised military aid and gave Manuel £4,000 to help him pay for mercenaries. The military aid never came, though. Manuel Paleologus was the last Byzantine or Roman emperor to visit London. The first had been Claudius 1,350 years before. Many of the emperors had set foot on the island, which now held a powerful kingdom. Vespasian had helped conquer Britain. Hadrian had built his famous wall there. Septimius Severus had tried to slaughter the Scots in order to bring his family together. Constantius Chlorus had recaptured Britain after it broke away from the empire. Constantine had escaped from Galerius to safety on the island. Valentinian had put down the Great Conspiracy. Just over a thousand years had gone by without an imperial visit, before Manuel became the next and last emperor to cross the Channel. He left disappointed and returned to France. He met with the kings of Aragon and Portugal and the Pope. In the end, though, all the kings of Europe had their own problems. Henry IV of England had to deal with the troublesome Welsh. The King of Aragon could not spare the troops this late in the season. Charles the Mad was mad. The West had not given the Empire any help. The Empire was doomed. The fact that it took another 50 years to actually fall was remarkable. A battle between the Ottomans and the Mongols under Tamburlaine lifted the siege of Constantinople in 1403, as the Sultan needed his troops elsewhere. Infighting amongst the descendants of Bayezid allowed Byzantium a bit of breathing space. 
Manuel II, a great statesman, even befriended the man who came out on top, Mehmet I. Manuel died in 1425, and his elder son John took over. Like his father, he did his best to save the reducing domains. He could only watch as the second city of the empire fell to the Turks in 1430. He pleaded with the Pope to call the forces of Christendom to save his empire, but the entreaties fell on deaf ears. John VIII Paleologus died in 1448, and the throne passed to his brother, Constantine. Constantine XI was invested with the title of Emperor on the 6th of January, 1449. For two years, the empire, or what was left of it, survived without being threatened. But in 1451, the event happened which would seal its fate forever. The Ottoman Sultan, Murad II, died in Adrianople. The emperor and his people breathed a sigh of relief. Murad's successor was Mehmet II, and he was only 19 years old. It was expected that this young man would not have the experience to rule properly, and there may be a handy civil war among the Ottomans. But this was not to be. Mehmet II was a man of contradictions. He was very learned for such a young man. He was well-schooled in culture and the arts, and as well as Turkish, he could speak Persian, Arabic, Hebrew, Greek and Latin. It was clear that this 19-year-old was a formidable presence. He was also determined determined to have Constantinople. He built a fortress on the European side of the Bosphorus, just outside the walls of the city. His great-grandfather Bayezid had built a fortress on the Asian side, at the narrowest part of the channel. The castle, called the Rumeli Hizar, was completed on the 31st of August 1452, and still stands on the shores of the Bosphorus today. Mehmet now commanded both shores of the strait. The Ottoman Sultan mounted cannons on one of the towers, and announced that every ship entering the Bosphorus must stop and be searched. Anyone who didn't would be fired on. A week or two later, a couple of Venetian ships ignored this order. Mehmet's cannons missed, but a few days later a third ship was also fired on. Mehmet's cannons blew it out of the water. Everyone now knew that Sultan Mehmet II meant business. Constantine XI realised that help from the West was his only chance, and this relied on religious unity. He attended a Mass in St Sophia, where the union of the Orthodox and Catholic churches was confirmed. Only a few of the resident Greek population turned up. While the people realised the graveness of the situation and the necessity of the move, they couldn't bring themselves to support it. Subsequent services in the great church were not busy. If Constantine thought that this act would finally persuade the European powers to help, though, he was sadly mistaken. In 1452... Constantine XI was visited by a Hungarian engineer called Orban. He told the emperor he could build the biggest cannon he could imagine, a cannon he boasted that could destroy the walls of Babylon itself. The poor emperor didn't have enough money to pay for the work. Orban shrugged and went to find someone else who could pay. Unfortunately for the empire, that person was Mehmet II. Less than three months later, a huge army arrived under the walls of Constantinople, a grand navy containing over a hundred ships sailed up to the sea walls. An enormous cannon, 27 feet long, which could fire stone balls weighing over a ton up to a mile, was positioned ready to attack the land walls. On Friday, April 6th, 1453, Mehmet gave the order, and the cannon opened fire. Constantine XI had known that a great siege was on its way, and spent the early months of 1453 preparing. 
he decided he needed to know how big a force he could muster to defend the city, including the Genoese who had arrived to help. The total came to 4,773 Greeks, 3,000 foreigners, mostly Genoese, Venetian and other Italians, but also Cretans, Catalans and a Scotsman named John Grant, who provided engineering advice. By the morning of the 6th of April, the men were arranged along the walls ready to fight as they had never fought before. The section of wall thought to be the weakest was defended by men under the command of the Emperor himself. The walls were repaired and strong. The men were ready to fight, and a great chain was in place across the entrance to the harbour, so the Turkish ships could not attack the sea walls. There was nothing, though, that they could do to defend the city against Mehmet's massive cannons. The people prayed that St Mary, the patron saint of the city, would protect them, as it seemed she had done for the past thousand years. Mehmet II rode up to the gates of Constantinople and demanded the surrender of the city, promising not to kill the women and children. The emperor sent a dignified reply, saying the city would not surrender, and so, on Friday the 6th of April, Mehmet gave the order and the cannon opened fire. The cannon was so large that when it was fired it shot backwards and ended up partially buried in the ground. It had to be dug out and reloaded before it could be fired again. This meant it could only be employed seven times a day. When it was fired, though, it caused massive destruction. Large sections of wall came down. The smaller cannons were fired at the crumbling walls, making the holes bigger and the destruction worse. At the end of the first day, a large section of the weakest part of the wall had been destroyed, and Mehmet ordered an attack by his army. Constantine and his men fought back, and the attack failed. It was the first of many. Each day, parts of the wall were destroyed, and each night the walls were repaired. There was no time to rebuild them properly, so the holes were filled with rubble. Wooden stakes were driven in, so the rubble was kept in place and the holes were filled with anything that could be found. Bales of wool and sheets of leather were hung on the rebuilt walls to absorb some of the impact of the cannonballs. This went on for days. Mehmet's cannons would knock down sections of wall during the day, the men and women of Constantinople would repair the broken sections during the night. Mehmet ordered more cannons to be brought to the weakest section of the wall. While he was waiting for them, he amused himself by capturing a couple of small fortresses outside the walls which still held out. Most of the defenders were killed, but Mehmet ordered that survivors were to be taken to Constantinople. There, just outside the walls, they were killed and impaled while the defenders of the city watched. It was a clear message. This is what would happen to the people of the city if they carried on fighting. The new cannon soon arrived. The walls were smashed again and another attempt to take the city was made on April the 18th. This also failed, the emperor again showing great personal courage and his men fighting valiantly. On Friday, April the 20th, in the morning, in the Sea of Mamara near Constantinople, four large ships appeared. They were loaded with food and other provisions for the city. Three were Genoese, and one, a big transport, belonged to the Empire. After a titanic battle, they got through. They provided respite, but the Empire needed more. Constantine prayed that other supplies, promised by the Republic of Venice, would arrive soon. The bombarding of the Theodosian walls continued. Every day they were damaged, and every night rebuilt. Mehmet was becoming impatient. He decided the cannon attack was not getting things done quickly enough, and he needed to get into the Golden Horn and the harbour, so he could attack the sea walls too. He ordered his largest ships to ram the chain and break it. 
They rammed the chain, but they didn't break it. In fact, some of the ships were badly damaged. Mehmet was very annoyed, and even more determined to get his ships into the harbour. The Turks were not only great soldiers, they were masters of organisation and planning. Mehmet ordered his engineers to come up with a way of breaking the chain and getting into the harbour. It took them just a couple of days to come up with the solution. The chain was unbreakable, they said, but why need to break it when they could just go round it? Turkish engineers made crates with wheels and metal tracks for them to go along. The ships were lifted onto the crates and dragged along the tracks. They were then dropped into the sea. It was a massive task, but Mehmet had so many men they could make it happen. Constantine Dragases was stunned. With the Turks in the harbour, the sea walls were open to be attacked. This meant the poor emperor had to defend three and a half more miles of wall than he was already defending. He didn't have enough men to defend the walls he was already defending, and he certainly didn't have enough men to defend even more. The poor emperor ran around the walls, urging every man to do his best for Constantinople and for St Mary. Constantine was now praying for the Venetian ships to arrive. Food began to run out. There were no more supplies arriving. The harbour was filled with Turkish ships, so fishing became too dangerous. By the 3rd of May, Constantine was desperate. Without the Venetian ships, the city was doomed. He had to know if they were coming. The emperor decided to send some of his men out to sea to look for an approaching fleet. On the night of Thursday the 3rd of May, a small Venetian ship crewed by 12 volunteer sailors slipped out of the harbour. It flew a Turkish flag so as not to be recognised. The bombard continued and the attacks continued. Turkish engineers also dug tunnels under the walls to make them weaker. Sometimes the tunnels collapsed on the miners and killed them. But the tunnels worked and more sections of wall fell down and had to be rebuilt. During the night of May the 7th an assault was launched against the damaged sections of wall. It failed. On the night of the 12th another assault came. It too failed. On the 23rd of May, the ship sent out to look for the Venetian fleet returned. It was recognised by the Turks as an enemy and they tried to sink it. The Venetian sailors were better than the Turkish sailors though and the ship made it back to Constantinople. Constantine greeted the men hoping for good news, but the news was bad. There was no fleet on its way to save the empire. It was unbelievable to the people of the dying empire that the Christians in the west were not going to save them from the Turks. It was true though. Constantinople was all alone. The situation was terrible and the superstitious people of the city began to see bad omens everywhere. The ministers begged Constantine to leave the city and escape. Even if it fell, they said, he must live. He could still be emperor in exile and they could plan to retake the city, just as Michael Paleologus had done nearly 200 years before. Constantine Dragases refused. This is my city and these are my people, he replied. I will not desert them now. On the 26th of May, Mehmet II called his ministers to see him. He announced the siege had gone on long enough. A few of his older generals thought he meant he was giving up and going home, and were quite pleased. This is not what Mehmet intended at all. He announced there would be a day of preparations, and then a day of prayer, and then the final attack would begin. He would take Constantinople and destroy the empire, on Tuesday the 29th of May 1453. He didn't try to keep the plan a secret and the defenders prepared for the savage assaults to come. On Monday the 28th everything changed. The Turks began their day of prayer and the cannons stopped firing. 
everything was quiet. As the evening approached, the people of the city began to make their way to the Hagia Sophia. The Greeks had stopped attending Mass in the great church after the Union, but it was their church, and they wanted to be there at this terrible time. For the first time, Latins and Greeks forgot their differences. Orthodox and Catholic Christians walked to the Hagia Sophia together. Hatred between East and West was forgotten. Constantine XI gave a great speech to the defenders of the city. He then made his way to the Hagia Sophia to be with his people. Once the service was over, Constantine Dragases went back to his palace and said goodbye to his household. He then took his place on the walls and waited. Mehmet didn't even wait till the sun came up. At one thirty in the morning, the assault began. The cannon fire was concentrated on one section of wall. For three hours, Mehmet sent wave after wave of Turkish soldiers against that same piece of wall. Every time they were driven back, Mehmet decided it was now time to send his best troops, called the Janissaries. They marched ferociously, not even faltering when they were showered with arrows. The Janissaries overran many of the towers and trapped the defenders between the walls. The walls had been breached at last, and the Turks streamed in. Constantine Dragases saw what had happened and knew that all hope had gone, and Constantinople was lost. He had promised not to desert his people, and he kept his word. He shouted, "The city has fallen, but I am alive." The story goes, he threw off his imperial regalia and dived in where the fighting was at its fiercest. He was never seen again. The Turks screamed into the city, killing and looting as they went. Most of the defenders were killed, and most of the art and valuables were destroyed or stolen. The imperial palace was wrecked. The survivors ran to their homes to protect their families. The Venetians and Genoese, who had all fought bravely to the end, ran to their ships and escaped. In the Hagia Sophia, a service was being held. The doors of the great church were closed and barricaded, and the service went on. The Turks burst in, killing most of the congregation and the priests, and stole the valuables. After three days, Mehmet ordered the sack to be stopped. Constantinople would be rebuilt and would be the capital of his empire, and he wanted there to be enough left to rebuild. As the sun rose over the great city of Constantinople on the second of June, fourteen fifty-three, a new and different world rose with it. The sack of the city was over, but the Christian emperors of Rome no longer owned their magnificent capital. The emperor himself was dead, and the future was ruled by the Turks. They were not to know it at the time, but this rule continues to the present day. Over five hundred and fifty years later, the capital of the empire is part of the modern country of Turkey. The Hagia Sophia was immediately converted into a mosque and remained so until the twentieth century. Some of the rest of the churches in the city were also transformed into mosques, but a large number remained as Orthodox Christian places of worship. The great church itself was converted into a museum in the nineteen thirties. And some of the original mosaics are now on display there. As the years went by and the actual fall of Constantinople became a distant memory, legends grew up around the fate of the last emperor and the future rise of the Christian Empire. Constantine Dragases died in the fall of Constantinople. He had promised his people he would be with them at the end, and he had kept his word. The accounts of the siege that were written at the time. Tell of Mehmet searching for the body of the emperor and finding one with the eagles of the empire engraved on its boots. There was no head, though, so no one could be a hundred percent sure that it was the emperor. Even the truth of this story isn't certain. What's pretty certain is that Constantine the Eleventh died in the fall and that his body was either recovered or not. Either way, 
dead, he certainly was. The legend, though, tells a different story. The heroic emperor had not died in the fighting at all. When it was certain the city was lost, an angel had swooped down and rescued him, and he was turned to stone. He found his way into a cave under the Golden Gate, and there, to this day, he waits. When the time is right, he will rise again, ready to lead his people. The legend is similar to the English legend of King Arthur. The effect of the fall of Constantinople on the kingdoms of the West was profound. Shock resonated throughout the lands of Christendom. There was no longer a buffer between the Turkish advance and the kingdoms of Western Europe. In the mid 1400s, there were no newspapers and certainly no internet. There was no mass media and no opinion columns. It's clear the letters page of the Daily Express or the Telegraph would have been full of vitriol had the letters page existed. Despite the lack of media outlets, people will always find a way to ensure their voices are heard. The Italian painter Andrea Mantegna was born in the Republic of Venice in 1431. He was at the forefront of the Renaissance in northern Italy. In 1459, give or take a year or two, he painted one of his masterpieces, The Agony in the Garden. This was just six years after the fall of Constantinople. And the terrible event would have been in the front of the minds of educated people in Italy. Byzantine scholars would have begun appearing in Italy, providing a constant reminder of what had happened. Artists are affected by their environment, and it's common for them to leave subtle clues to their feelings in their work. The subject of the agony in the garden is quite a common one. Jesus is depicted praying while some of his disciples sleep. In the background, Judas and some Roman soldiers are on their way to arrest him. Further in the background, on a hill above the scene, is a city. The city is meant to be Jerusalem, and this would be consistent with the subject matter. There are a number of buildings in the painting, though, that hint of something else. In fact, the city looks nothing like Jerusalem would have done at the time. It seems more to be a representation of the recently fallen Constantinople. There is a domed church, maybe representing the Hagia Sophia. There is an equestrian statue, probably of Justinian. Standing in front of the dome, but it's the walls around the city which most closely resemble their real counterparts. Mantegna's painting shows walls which are punctuated by large square towers, just like Constantinople's finely breached defences. Large sections of this wall remain intact in Istanbul today. When you view them in real life, you can see the stark resemblance. On top of the domed church and the other towers are Turkish crescents. This very depiction of the moon appears today on the flag of Turkey. It's supposed to represent the phase of the moon on the early morning of the 30th of May 1453, when the mighty forces of Mehmet II took the city. These crescents turn the towers in Mantegna's painting into minarets. This is a clear reference to the formerly Christian city being lost to the Turks. Mantegna has left us a commentary on what was in the news at the time. But. The fall of Constantinople had a positive effect on the world. When the city fell, scholars poured out and made their way to Western Europe, mainly to Italy, bringing with them ancient texts long since forgotten in the West. Scientists, philosophers, historians, and many others arrived in the West and began translating the great literature and philosophical works and scientific texts. The scholars of the Italian Renaissance were reintroduced to Plato and Aristotle. The great works of Homer and Herodotus and other Greek and Roman writers became available to a hungry audience. The people in the modern kingdoms, which had been part of the old Western Roman Empire, 
were reintroduced to their heritage. The Theodosian walls had been strong enough to keep the cultural centre of the Eastern Roman Empire safe for a thousand years. As all around it collapsed into anarchy and new empires and kingdoms rose and fell, the walls kept the armies of the barbarians and neighbouring civilizations out of Constantinople. If they hadn't, then maybe the years of learning housed within them would have been destroyed, just as happened in Rome and many other cities. By the time the city fell, Western Europe was ready to receive what it had to offer. It's going too far to say the fall of Constantinople was responsible for the Renaissance. The process was already well underway. But the sudden appearance of scholars and teachers certainly gave it a huge boost. Western Europe's development continued apace and it became the centre of the movement towards modernisation and industrialisation. As the Renaissance gathered pace, England was one of the kingdoms which benefited most. Thanks again to David for inviting me on to give me my thoughts on the fall of Constantinople. If you'd like to hear more about Greece, Rome and Byzantium, then please go to www.mythandhistory.podbean.com. Have you made the switch to NYX? Millions of women have made the switch to the revolutionary period underwear from NYX. That's K-N-I-X. Period panties from NYX are like no other, making them the number one leak-proof underwear brand in North America. They're comfy, stylish, and absorbent, perfect for period protection from your lightest to your heaviest days. They look, feel, and machine wash just like regular underwear, but feature incognito protection that has you covered. You can shop sizes from extra small to 4XL. Choose from all kinds of colors, prints, and different styles, from bikinis to boy shorts, thongs to high-rise. You've got to try NYX. See why millions are ditching disposable, wasteful period products and have switched to NYX. Go to knix.com and get 15% off with promo code TRY15. That's nix.com promo code TRY15 for 15% off life-changing period underwear. That's knix.com. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com